This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here, my guest this week in the studio, Deborah Morrow. She's the executive director of Middleway House. Deborah, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, Deborah, I, I want to say a little something about Middleway House. When you go to the website, a pop-up comes up, and it says, Important, do not use this website if you suspect your computer is being monitored. That's sort of scary. It is. And with computer systems and telephones and everything, there's a lot of digital stalking that goes on. So it is an important consideration for survivors. It's a world that a lot of us don't know and a lot of us refuse to know. That's sad. Everybody, I don't care who you are, knows somebody who has experienced domestic violence at some point in their life. And that's what Middleway House does. It is the city's resource for people who are getting beaten up. They're survivors. And they turn to Middleway House. Could it be, could we say last resort? I hope it's not last resort. But if yeah. that's what we're there for, that's what we're there for. Um, we want people to reach out whenever they need help and support. And we'll be there for them. You're really the, the one now. It's your it's your outfit now. Yeah. Sometimes I wake up and it's hard to believe that I'm in this role. I mean, I used to look at Toby and I used to think, wow, what an amazing person. And now I'm like, wait a second. I'm like in that same role. Does it frighten you oh, to, to have that kind of responsibility? And so many women and others depending on you. Absolutely. We serve women and men. We serve victims of domestic violence, victims of sexual assault. And... There's a huge, wonderful staff of individuals who are affected by by vicarious trauma from the work that they do. And every day, I think I cannot let any of them down. And I'm human, and I'm sure I do let people down, but that's really a lot of responsibility and a scary place to be. I have a friend who knew you when you first came to Middleway House. Hmm. May I say this? Yeah. Uh, you arrived at Middleway House as a client. Yes. Do you refer to the people who come to you as clients? I like to refer to them as survivors. Survivors. Because, yeah, yeah. Deborah, you were a survivor. Yeah. When you got there, according to this friend of mine, you seemed to be extremely shy and quiet. <laughs> And yeah. sort of hunched over, protective in a way. And this person described you, I hope I'm not making <laughs> no, you uncomfortable. No, you're fine. This it's... person described you as sort of blossoming mm. over the years, being at Middleway House, being involved with Middleway House in your new life after the life you had gotten away from. I can see where there was a whole lot of growth from my time at Middleway House. I, I totally can understand what that person was saying. I know how I was when I walked there. I felt like I was undeserving of help. I felt like at any moment, somebody was going to look at me and say, wait a second, you don't really deserve this help. You did deserve every bit of abuse you got. And I was 
always waiting for that rug to be pulled out from under me. So I tried really hard to be okay and to do everything right. And so I immediately went to work at Food Works and I went to school and I tried to build a better life for me and my kids. And, you know, there are little bits and pieces where I remember where things changed, you know, like the first time I heard myself laugh after not hearing myself laugh for years and things like that where I I can see where somebody could describe it the way you describe it. What drove you to come to Middleway House? Honestly, in a lot of in a lot of ways I was probably about at my end. Um when the neighbors ended up calling the police you know, I remember the police giving me the information about Middleway House, and um, I thought that they had made a mistake thinking I was somebody who deserved help. I thought, well, if they made them that mistake, then maybe somebody else will make that mistake too. And so for me, that police officer handing me that card with that information, actually it was a sheriff's officer, made all the difference in the world because I I don't think myself personally I would have reached out if somebody else hadn't told me I deserved help. You're not unusual in that sense. No. I Throughout my time working at Middleway House, when I've been out tabling and stuff, and I'll see people come by and they'll look at the display, and you can see the look in their eyes. And, you know, I remember when I looked at displays for Middleway House, and thinking that that was for somebody else, somebody who didn't deserve to be abused. And, you know, it makes me sad because I want everybody to know that no one deserves to be abused. How in heaven's name can you go from the the constant thought process that I deserve this abuse to realizing, heck no, I don't deserve this abuse. That seems a sea change. You know, I I don't know. I think it was gradual. I'm sure that there were you know, I'm I it was a long work in process of counseling, yeah. of working with my advocates, of being told, "No, you don't deserve that." You know, of realizing that I am as valuable as everybody else. I am not less than anybody. And you can't do it alone. I I couldn't. I mean, I I I think support is necessary for everybody. I think that it's valuable, your own voices in your head telling you all the negative things. You oftentimes need those positive voices saying those positive things to you, and they're coming from outside sources. You make an allusion to food works. Mm-hmm. Food works, I understand, was an actual business that Middleway House was instrumental in. What was that? It was fabulous. It was a wonderful business that did catering and did... Uh, meals for daycares, Head Start, Area 10, and it was a wonderful opportunity for um, individuals who were getting help at Middleway House to re-enter the workforce, and and that was huge. I mean, it gave people skills and taught them their value through working. And one of the one of the things about uh, people who are surviving is the fact that they're, uh, in many cases, economically dependent, and leaving isn't an easy choice or even a possible choice at some certain times. 
Absolutely. And Middle Way House, we, we try to challenge those barriers. So, you know, we have a child care, licensed child care program for our families as they're returning to work. Um, with FoodWorks, what was great about that is that it, it, it gave people an opportunity to get jobs. When I got my job at FoodWorks, I really don't think any place else would have hired me at the time. What, what, had you worked previous to this? Years before. Uh, years before. Years before. And so I, there's this huge period of time where, mm-hmm. well, what did she do? She did nothing. We can't hire her. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember every time I even walked near somebody, I was always saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I walked around saying, I'm sorry. And finally, they, you know, you can't keep saying you're sorry. You have nothing to be sorry for. I always felt like I was in everybody's way. And I realized in that job that I was doing well eventually, and it raised my confidence. And that was huge. And I really loved when we had that aspect of Middle Way House. The problem with that was is that as a program, it cost a lot of money. Yeah. It really did not earn enough money to be self-supporting. And right. so we were spending a lot of funds on it. And that became one of our challenges. You also had to live somewhere mm-hmm. when you had come to, through the Middle Way House door. And you lived in what's called the Rise. The Rise. What's The Rise? I love The Rise, and it's celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. It is a transitional housing program for individuals and their children who have experienced domestic violence. There's 28 apartments, two- and three-bedroom apartments. Our youth program is situated in that building, which is a wonderful program with after-school tutoring and, and activities for the kids, and it is just a wonderful program. And where is that? It's on South Washington Street. And it's uh, sort of across the street, in a way, from your headquarters. Yeah, and it's a great location downtown. So individuals that don't have cars, they can use public transportation easy, walk to the grocery store. It's a great way for families to put their lives together. They can go to the library together. And it just, I love what happens at the Rise. Where do uh, women without children go? Can they live there, too? Um, Individuals that don't have kids, we do have six permanent housing units Uh um, for individuals who don't have kids, but that is not located in the RISE. In the RISE, it's only for adults with children who are in their custody. You have to get people to think in a way where they love themselves. Yeah, yeah. I hate to think of people not loving themselves. Did you I think love that, yourself? No, <laughs> I didn't. But I think it's more about helping them recognize their value, recognizing yeah. their positive qualities, recognizing the things in them that somebody else didn't want them to see. Their strengths. I mean, I'll tell you, survivors are the most resilient people. The experiences that they go through and the, helping them come to terms and honor the strength that they have for overcoming adversity and the situations that they're in. I find every person that enters our program absolutely amazing. As a perfect example of what you folks do would be, of course, you and you realize how strong and how smart and capable you are at this point. You're the head of a large organization here in Bloomington. Can you ever have imagined that before you walk through those doors? 
No, I never would have imagined that. I never, I never would have. Sometimes, I mean, I still, it still sometimes is shocking to me. I, I was at Kroger's one time and I ran into my son in the parking lot and he was like, I just heard you on the radio. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, th- those moments, I, I don't know if I'll ever get used to that. And that's not all you've done. You went to school. Yes, I did. And you sort of surprised yourself by getting into first <laughs> Ivy Tech. Yes, I remember. I'm surprised. I remember when I went in to enroll, it was right after I moved into the Rise. I moved into the Rise in December, and then in January I was enrolling in school. Huh. And I remember I was crying because I was af- so afraid they were going to tell me I was too stupid to go to school. And they didn't. And I was so shocked. And so then that made me just that much more determined I was going to do well in school because I needed to prove that I was good enough to go. <laughs> and you studied criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, I, I've always felt like there's just a fine line between people that there's just those moments in time. I guess I'll, I'll tell you a story. I remember when I had my oldest son when I was 16. And I remember one time when I was in a Kroger and I didn't know about food stamps and stuff at the time. And I had enough money to buy some baby food and some diapers and I didn't have any extra money. And I wanted to steal some hamburger really bad, but I couldn't. And I, walking home from the grocery store, and I knew I had some oatmeal at home, and walking home, I was so angry at myself. And I was like, other people can steal, and you can't even steal hamburger, and that you're just stupid, and that's ridiculous. And I was just kind of just tearing myself down because I did not steal this hamburger. And looking back at that moment... I am so thankful that I didn't because <laughs> if I would have stole that hamburger and got away with it, I probably would have stole again right. and I would have stole again. I see that in life people have those moments of decisions and people often make the best decisions that they can at that given moment with the information that they have. I don't think anybody decides to live a life of crime just because. Mm-hmm. I think there's these dividing moments in life. And I think I I wanted to study criminal justice because I didn't want to be critical and judgmental when I understood how close a person could come and where that line you could cross. So this person who thought maybe she's not smart enough, maybe she's too stupid to get into Ivy Tech and study criminal justice, you became the criminal justice student of the year at Ivy Tech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember I was working at Food work. I remember getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning doing homework before I went to work. I just – a lot of the drive was I had to prove I deserved all of this that I was given, the second chance that I was given. A lot of it was feeling like I had that. And then the second part of it, it was like I had an opportunity and I couldn't let it go. And then you went to Indiana State University Mm -hmm. where you continued in your study of Mm -hmm. criminal justice. You succeeded just as spectacularly there. You graduated. Magna cum laude, yeah. What were you thinking was going to happen with your life after getting out of college? 
basically in your middle age. I didn't know. I just, I wanted, I felt like in a lot of ways, you know, I had, my kids hadn't had the best of situations and I wanted them to be proud of me. So that was probably, I'm sorry, I get emotional. That was probably one of my driving goals. I wanted my kids to finally have a mom that they could be proud of. I don't know. I somehow wanted to give back. I wanted to do good and make up for all the good that had came my direction. I assume the kids are proud of you. I hope. <laughs> I hope. Are you proud of you? I don't think much about that. I don't know. I don't know. I always feel like I could do better. I think that's kind of in my nature. I always wish I could do better. So to say I'm proud of myself, I I know I've come a long way, but I'd always like to do better. Where did you grow up? In Lafayette and then in Spencer, Indiana. I have an older sister that's three years older. Um, my dad worked, was like head of a factory in Spencer, well, in Lafayette, and then he moved to Spencer and became the head of the factory there. Uh-huh. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Back when you were a kid, mm-hmm. there was an incident with a priest. Or several inst- incidents. With the same priest? Yeah. Sexual abuse. How old were you? Mm, from the time I was like 9 to 12. How did you survive that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you thought you were at fault. Oh, I thought I was going to hell. Why? Because I thought it was my fault, because priests don't do anything wrong. They're and good guys. That's right. And yeah. I remember sitting in confession with him. It was a small town and a small church. And, of course, you know that that's the priest that's on the other side of the confession. And I remember sitting in confession and lying because I felt like I couldn't say the really bad thing I had done, which was made the priest do that when he was sitting on the other side. So I would sit in confession, and I would make up things. I lied. I pushed somebody at school. I would just make up these things. These are my sins. Yeah, and so then I felt that much worse because I had lied in confession. That has probably been my biggest challenge to overcome in life. We lived just down the block from the church, And that priest came to that church right at the time we moved there. He had been moved from several various churches and then landed in a small town church. Are we to assume that he was moved for reason? Um, That would be my assumption. I have have heard he abused in a previous place. They said they didn't find that out until later. I don't know that. I know that he took us one time to visit a family that he said that he got moved from that church because they said he was getting too close to the family. So this is probably, like I said, my biggest challenge to overcome because I saw what it did to our family. To this day, I can still smell the smell, and I hate to say this, I can still smell the smell of Chlorette's. And scotch, because my mom had to be drunk to go to church. And standing next to her on Saturday evening mass and that smell. There, you know, um, I don't blame anybody. I feel like people do the best they can. 
with what they know. And I imagine this was a challenging situation for everybody that knew. I think people knew and chose not to know because that was the safest thing to do. That's what we do. Yeah. I, I Yeah, and so I can't blame them because who knew how to navigate the situation? No one did. And so we were left. He would have us. He, he groomed us. He would take us places. He would pay us to clean. And I won't speak for anybody else because I can only share my story. Right. He would pay us to clean and do things for him. And I remember one summer he wanted um, me to come over because he was going to do mass every morning. And it was a small town and a small church. And no one went to mass. So it was always just going to be me and him there. No one went went to weekday mass. There was yeah, nobody yeah. to go. And I remember he would pay me a dollar a day for to do it. And I remember begging him to let somebody else come and do it too because I didn't want to be there alone. And so I thought about the kids that I know. And this, to this day, haunts me. And I found a little girl that I thought that he would not find attractive and had her go with us. And then all of a sudden she wasn't allowed to go anymore, and I guess he had gone to the family's house, and the mom, I don't know what all happened. I remember that they chased him away, and they weren't allowed to be around him anymore, so I hope nothing happened to her. I, you know, I... And you take that on yourself. I do. I, I mean, I was 10 years old, but, yeah. I mean, at the same time, you know, I, as long as I have a memory of it, you know, I'll still wish, you know, things would have been different. Our guest this week, Deborah Morrow, mm-hmm. who is the executive director of Middleway House. She came to Middleway House in the mid-2000s. What kind of services, besides getting a job and a place to live, was Middleway House able to give for you or for anybody? You know, they believed me. Probably that right there is probably, it, it was probably the first place that I could tell my story and feel like I was believed, you know. I think I was believed other times, you know, but I mean where there was this unconditional support and belief and not feeling judged at all. And that's what I hope Middleway House continues to always provide to survivors. One of your emphases as executive director is, I guess, early childhood education. Prevention programs. We can do this crisis work forever. I mean, you know, but... If we ever want to do anything to end it, we have to do the prevention work and the efforts to end domestic abuse, sexual abuse through healthy relationships. Does Middleway House go into schools in the area? Yes, we go into the middle schools and high schools and do the Building Healthy Relationships program. It teaches kids about what healthy relationships are. It teaches them about gender stereotypes and things like that. I mean, all the th- bases, um, dating relationships, what's healthy and what's not. I mean, these are things that even in middle school, kids are already 
questioning and asking and yeah. we want everybody to feel accepted in who they are and you know help letting kids know there's help available and oftentimes when our staff go into the schools there are kids who reach out for help and that's important who reach out to our we always have an on-scene advocate there for them to talk to and that's important because anything that we can do to help kids from going through bad situations is valuable. With the elementary age kids, there's some programming out in the community with the Boys and Girls Club, Banneker Center, Girls Inc. For younger kids, they need to understand boundaries with their bodies and healthy relationships where, you know, okay, what, what do you feel comfortable with with who? And to me, that's how we're going to make a huge difference. And the work goes on. Yeah, but maybe with prevention work, we can slow down some of the crisis work. Volunteers. Mm -hmm. Who volunteers at Middleway House? Oh, my gosh. We have a, a large base of volunteers. We have a ton of IU students, service learning students. But what I see from this campus is that we have an amazing bunch of young students who want to make a difference in this world, who really want to help. And we get a great large supply of volunteers from the IU community. Um, the youth program, our after-school tutoring with the kids, we'd like to have each student matched with a volunteer. And that's usually able to be done. We could have 30 or 40 kids in our youth program and each one matched with a volunteer. Our crisis line volunteers, a lot of them are IU students. I would say I would love to see some more community members. We do have some great community members that volunteer, but I would love to see more because when the IU students go on holidays and stuff, we often are shorthanded. So. Which is going to happen in a few mm -hmm. weeks. Uh, there's going to be the holiday break. Yeah. And uh, how are you going to keep everything staffed? Well, we, we do it. I mean, staff does it, and we have some dedicated volunteers that will be there. I will say, if anybody's interested in volunteering, we do have a volunteer training on December 1st. It's a Saturday. Where do they go? It's at the Bloomington Transit. Inside, uh -huh. they have a multi-purpose room. Okay. It's from 9 to 5, and we would love to have anybody join us. Now, the community donates a lot of money. Oh, my gosh. The community is wonderful. We could not do the work we do without the community. We absolutely could not. I don't know whether sometimes people realize the many opportunities for volunteering. Volunteers work in every part of our agency, from our crisis line to our on-scene advocates who will go to the hospital with somebody who's experienced domestic abuse or sexual assault our youth program, our daycare, volunteers are in all parts of our organization, and there's actually volunteer hours available 24 hours a day. We'll never tell anybody they have to leave an abusive relationship. We know that leaving you is You don't the shake your finger. Oh, my gosh, no. We know that leaving is the most dangerous time. We know that the person's that's telling us their story knows their abuser better than we do. And we also know that it takes seven to nine times before somebody is actually ready to leave an abuser. And we never want them to think, well, I can't go back to them. They told me to leave and I didn't leave and they're going to tell me, well, why didn't you do what we told you the first time? We don't ever want anybody to feel that way. My guest, 
Deborah Morrow, Executive Director of Middleway House. Deborah, thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared with us. Thank you. Thank you.